Brian. Brian, what's the matter? Taxes are due next week, man, and I, I can't sort any of this nonsense out. Oh, does it look like you're going to owe? I, I don't know. Let's see. Huh. Actually, it looks like I won't owe a cent this year. Hooray! Hand me a celebratory beer. Uh, wait a second. Did you read the new provision? Apparently it was just passed into law this year. What provision? The pun tax. Son of a bitch. I'm going to owe thousands. Hand me a consolation beer. attempt to adjust your tracking. It is indeed time for another full resolution episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that has finally claimed the number one spot in that category thanks to the long overdue retirement of the Stereo Optics Stumblebum show. <laughs> it's great to be on top when you're the only one. <laughs> they, they finally hung up their last uh, st- Stereo Optic and, and now we are the, the go-to Home Media Review Podcast. <laughs> Hooray for progress. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, the Pixel Protector. And I am joined by my crime-fighting partner um, in crime, Christopher Lawrence Cox, the Blue Hoarder. Can't stop fighting crime. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. I want to remind you guys that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here at oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search one of us in the podcast section. And hey, while you're there, why don't you give us a five-star rating and leave a review? We always like to read those. And I also want to remind you we're on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, or you can follow the site proper at One of Usnet, and you can follow, you can also like the site on Facebook, facebook.com slash One of Usnet. Hey, you guys, maybe you should consider becoming a subscriber because as of the end of this week, we are going to have finalized all of the incentives for our various level subscribers, and holy crap, we've got some cool stuff to dole out to those people good enough to give of themselves so that we can keep the lights on. It's the right thing. Do it now. Are, are you going to talk like Batman throughout the whole show? Because if you are, I could talk like this. <laughs> Who's Batman? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Blue Order. Your Paramount Blu-ray contact. Gratefully accepted. I will need it. Anywho, uh, we have a special guest with us today. <laughs> Hopefully he's going to talk like the Joker the whole time. <laughs> And uh, our special guest is Matt Frank. <laughs> Never mind, I can't do it. We're <laughs> um, just going to talk like Godzilla. <laughs> I love crossovers. <laughs> okay, I'm done. See, I thought you were going to show up as both of the little girls from Mothra, but that's fine. Mothra, Mothra, come back, Mothra. Is it Mothra or Gamera? It's Mothra. Is it uh, Mothra, Mothra is the one. Yeah, Mothra is the one with the uh, the little the little twin fairies, whom of which I actually have one of their albums they put out. Oh, good lord! Of course, you do. <laughs> of course I do. I, I do know that Gamera had like a band of roving children. Uh, kind of it, it was it was several bands of several roaming. Mothra children. Mothra was the fourth Godzilla movie, right? Wow, that's actually accurate. Look at, look at the big brain. Look at the big brain on Chris. Yeah. <laughs> you know something about something we're talking about. Mark it down on the goddamn calendar. I have Wikipedia. Wait a minute, this isn't the sports show. What are you... <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll delve further into Matt's appearance in just a moment. But first, it's time to reach out to the Interspirit and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... The Letter. You've got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Our first question comes from Jesse Shade, who asks, What are your favorite random cameos by rock bands in movies? Chris, I'm going to start with you on this one, because you're more of the... The music guy that I am. So. Um, you know, the thing is, I was I, I wasted 20 minutes looking up rock musicians before I went back and read the questions. Like, oh, fuck, he wants cameos by entire bands. So <laughs> I was like, well, that makes it more complicated, yeah, I think certainly. I you can kind of fudge it one way or the 
Right. Well, the funny thing is there there is a differential. I Looking around on the internet, I was like, wow, sites seem to go one or the other for their various listings for people who like to do lists. And going through there and reminding me of stuff, uh, there were several that came up, like, a, um, like of course, a Primus in Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey was a big one. You know, if you remember that, they were the, the, the band on uh, doing Battle on the Bands right before them on stage uh, there. Uh, and then, of course, uh, most people have never seen the movie Tapeheads, but it's a random little favorite of mine with John Cusack and Tim Robbins where Fishbone plays a country band, which is odd. But by far, I think the best has got to be Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and Swingers, who are not only is it a, a really cool little cameo, but it made that band. <laughs> Those songs are that, and that scene is the most memorable sequence in that entire film. That movie dropped at exactly the right time in that three-week period when all of America decided that swing music was back in fashion. <laughs> and three weeks later forgot all about and it. three weeks later was like, Big Bad what now? I don't yeah. understand. What is that? Yeah. Uh, for me, my favorite has always been Twisted Sister and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> and it goes back to even like, I, I was a huge fan of Pee-wee growing up. Pee-wee's Playhouse is something I watched all the time. I love the movie. But as a kid, I didn't know who Twisted Sister was. So they were just like this weird kind of pseudo scary rock band in the movie and then as i got older and kind of fell in love with 80s hair metal i was like oh shit that's d snyder and twisted sister that's fucking amazing uh but you know they have such a weird story the fact that he was just a children's school teacher yeah and like gotten a medal as kind of like a side jokey type thing and then it at suddenly it was making a huge amount of money he's like i don't know what to do now it turns out <laughs> you take it if it is your money because I'm good at this. So yeah. well, he was a good guy. He was one of the leaders in the fight against the fucking PMRC. So now he's 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 definitely a good dude. I've heard uh, Adam Green talk at length about what a cool guy D. Snyder is, and also uh, real big fish in basketball. Oh, good lord! I forgot about <laughs> that. Such a weird, like, <laughs> holy crap! Probably the most '90s thing about that movie. And there's a lot about that movie that's very '90s, but real big fish showing up for pretty much no reason whatsoever. And doing a cover of Take On Me is <laughs> um, probably the most 90s thing in basketball. And by the way, basketball is a great movie. Smash Mouth in almost every film from the 90s. So. Yeah. <laughs> that is too bad. Let's, let's, let's just all agree to forget Smash Mouth. I would like we? to say special mention for the only reason to even see It's Pat the movie is Ween's appearance in it. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> wow. I, you know what? I've wondered how many shows it would take before we mentioned It's Pat. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're well over the 100 mark. So yep. congratulations. There you go. <laughs> Confetti. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fun and horrifying. Uh, our second question comes from uh, Tyler Mathiasen, who says, if you had the ability to make one movie not exist, what movie would it be? Um, well, actually, this was shockingly easy for me. I, for, at first, my thought was like, okay, now I've got to be all like, look back at the structure and history of Hollywood and what changed, like various things. I was like, in some ways, the answer probably should be, and I hate to say it, Star Wars. (laughs) As much as I love that movie, it really did fuck up Hollywood in a lot of ways. But I'm, of course, not going to say it because I love Star Wars to death. (laughs) So I'm going to give a more personal answer here and, and just combine two into one and say, let's face it. Don't you wish there had never been a sequel to The Matrix? I mean, we all oh, wanted man. there to be a sequel to Matrix, but, you know, talk about your be careful what you wish for bullshit. <laughs> it, like, left such a bad taste in everyone's mouth for it, that now it's hard to even... And yet it still tastes like chicken. Yeah, it's hard to even really... Like, we held up The Matrix as one of the great sci-fi movies, certainly the greatest cyberpunk movie, and now it's hard to say it with a straight face because of how bad the sequel is. Yeah, we really kind of killed the franchise when you think about it, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So you're saying they should have pulled the plug after the first one? Yup. Awesome. Matt Frank, do you have an answer to this? I didn't ask you about the last one. Do you have an answer to this question? Well, the last one I was probably just going to say Vanilla Ice, but anyway, uh, the... uh, (laughs) Ninja, go, ninja, go! (laughs) But, uh, no, um... God, you know, that's a really tough one because I guess there's just, there's not, I I can honestly say that there's very few movies that I've seen in my life that are truly abysmal, that I can just say that there's no inherent value to this whatsoever. Maybe I'm just not watching enough, you know, movies. Uh, But, um, (laughs) I mean, most people would assume that I would say, oh, the 1998 Godzilla, but, you know. You're you're clear there are worse movies. Oh, far worse. Far worse in the genre that I... The, 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 in the kaiju genre itself, um, I would I would have to say though, um, at the top of my head, uh, probably the one that I think I would have to erase. Hang on, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I don't know. I, was it was that Marcel Marceau film? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> no, see, that's just it. Is that I'm I have a hard time reconciling that because I feel like th- there's the the worst thing a movie to me can can do is be boring or just be kind of hateful. Yeah. And one of the closest things that comes to my mind that I just really film I just don't like. And I don't think we would and any of us would be poorer for it if it just stopped existing. Would probably be Big Man Japan. Oh, good lord! Really? Yeah, oh, wow. I I was not a fan of that movie either. But wow, I did not expect to hear that coming from your it's, mouth. It's it's you know, and again, I'm not saying outright that it should cease to exist. It's just watching that movie and uh, being a kaiju fan. It's just kind of hateful and mean spirited. And I mean, I get what it's trying to say. It's like a good idea that was like executed in a way that's almost anti kaiju. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, in the one hand, I kind of like the melancholy aspect of it. It's like, cause kaiju isn't really, kaiju aren't popular in Japan right now. And it's kind of like, kind of a lamenting loss of this, of what was once really great. But it's all just so fucking, melancholy and just <laughs> we get it it's sad <laughs> let it go I like it. <laughs> you and tim league <laughs> I, I would have to say honestly my answer would be robocop 3 Ooh. It's, not, it's a horrible movie it is a horrible but jetpack it's not the fact that it's a horrible movie that makes me want to kind of strike it from the record entirely it's the fact that it killed the career of a very promising genre director in fred mm. decker i wanted to see more fred decker movies yeah after seeing like Night of the Creeps, I say Night of the Creeps, and yeah. Squad. Yeah, but like, nobody wanted. Oh, he's to work. right. He was the same guy. Yeah. Oh shit. He well, now I'm sad. And effectively destroys mm-hmm. his career. Oh and fuck. That, that, is, that is a travesty. It seemed like a you know like a, wow this is my step into the big time. Yeah. But it <laughs> seems like one of those situations where everything was set up to fail before he even got there. Yeah, I mean we and people use that expression all the time. Oh, it killed his career. But usually when they say that, if you go to IMDb, it's like no, they've been working steady ever since. You just don't watch their movies anymore. Mm-hmm. No, in Fred Decker's case, it really did kill his career. And it makes me so sad because Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad are both amazing films. I agree. I would, I would, I would kill probably every, every iteration of Robocop except the very first one if it meant that we got to see more Fred Decker movies. So. Fair enough. Damn. There you have it. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Matt, uh, Matt here, Matt Frank, let me just be clear. He, of course, is the artist on Godzilla. Is it King of the Monsters? Is that the uh, name of the, the official? The current series is Rulers of Earth. Rulers of Earth. Okay. Yes. Um, we're in, uh, I'm actually in the process of wrapping up issue 12, which I should have wrapped up last night. But, um, and, uh, we got approved for four more issues. Nice. So, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm in the middle of, a, I'm going to start a break though. My buddy Jeff Zorno is taking issue 13 so I can stop for a little while. <laughs> You're just one big mass of carpal tunnel right now, huh? <laughs> Everything hurts. I, I have always said you're a guy with a lot of issues, so. Uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that would be correct, sir. Cool. So yeah, uh, with Matt Frank being here and ceremony now done been stood upon, Let's dive into the reviews. Oh, he even joined it. Oh. <laughs> and of course, everything we talk about, there will be an Amazon link here on the post. So if you decide that you want to purchase anything we've discussed, or if you just want to make an Amazon purchase in general, please use our links to get there. Because no matter what you buy, as long as you get there via our links, we get a cut of that sale and it really helps. So thank you very much. But in order of Matt Frank's visit, we're going to start with King Kong Escapes. And he, <laughs> he escaped from... He escaped from not having to do any more Japanese films after this. <laughs> yeah, so. it's very true. It's very true. Uh, this was actually the second appearance. We'll talk about uh, in a minute the first one, uh, King Kong in Japanese films. Now, strangely, yes. at this period of time, King Kong was actually more popular than Godzilla was in Japan, apparently. Well, it's um, it's kind of a little in column A, a little bit in column B. It's uh, What it was was that uh, Toho had a license to Kong. And they wanted to make use of it. I mean, worldwide, Kong was still a more ubiquitous name. Yeah. People still immediately recognize Kong because it's King Kong. But, um, you know, Godzilla was still Japan's, was still Japan's signature monster. Sure. But, uh, and, but interestingly, the special effects director, Aiji Tsuburaya, who was the, the guy responsible for basically creating the whole man ensued miniature city, Subgenre, uh, 
he really cited the original King Kong as a major influence. Like it was the it was the movie he saw that made him quit flight school and go into film. Well, I think a, a, certainly a lot of people were strongly affected by RKO's original Very much. King Kong film. It still holds up as a pretty amazing film even today. Oh, yeah. Uh, this one was odd even for <laughs> these. I mean, let me just put it this way. Rankin Bass mm-hmm. was the major producer alongside Toho here. These are the oh, people right. who did all the little like stop motion animated, uh, yeah. like Frosty Variation. the Snowman. <laughs> <laughs> and even in fact, like one of the main characters in here is voiced by, uh, the guy who was in a lot of Rankin Bass cartoons, mm-hmm. but is best known for Boris from Rocky and Bullwinkle. So was we, that, and it's, oh, and it's the, and it's the, it's the villain. It's our, our villainous Dr. character. Who? Who? Doctor Who. Yeah. Um yeah, Doctor Who, which as a quick side note, played by the wonderful character actor Ace Amamoto, who who's yeah well, Doctor Who. Doctor Who I don't he, know if that's more plagiaristic or more racist. <laughs> well he's he's pretty Who's well on Monster known. Island? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was waiting for that joke to happen. But yeah, the uh he he and along with this really kind of a really fascinating cast of characters, uh Amamoto played a, a, a huge number of characters. He's best he's best known in Godzilla fans as the old toy maker in Godzilla's Revenge. He's uh played a number of just just weird little side characters, uh, and also uh, starring one of my personal favorite Toho girls, um, Miyahama. Oh yeah, known from the Bond film You Only Live Twice. Yes, exactly. Uh, she uh, plays Madame Piranha. Just God, that name. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually, my she's she's my favorite part of the movie. I mean, forget the monsters, forget that when she shows up in her black cocktail dress. She's pretty hot. Holy shit! She was the first Asian ever to appear in Playboy magazine. Really? I didn't yep. know that. Yep. That's all I gotta go. Uh, you know, another fun note here is that the lead sort of badass white dude. Like, <laughs> Rhodes oh, Reason. Rhodes Reason. And I was like, why is this guy so familiar? I look at his list of credits. I'm like, I've never seen any of these other movies. He's the brother of the lead actor from This Island Earth. And he sounds and looks wow. just like him. Wow. <laughs> Which really, we'll talk about it in a moment. The other Godzilla movie, I felt like they had to have been cribbing sound cues from This Island Earth. Uh, oh, that's, that's now the fun one of this one is that this is the first appearance of Mecha Kong, giant robot Kong. Build a giant metallic King Kong to mine for precious minerals, <laughs> and then it can't get the job done. Yeah, Jeez. it has problems with radiation, which is you know okay. It's a cool little plot point. Uh, works. So they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to get the the best solution is to get the actual Kong <laughs> to come to this. Build a giant metal version. Or, in fact, why because because it is awesome. Why does it need to be Kong shaped at all? <laughs> it's the real Kong. Because it is awesome. Did you not hear me? <laughs> it could have just been, I don't know, a backhoe, but sure. Make it King Kong. So, Why not? Uh, yeah, they end up like, there's, and meanwhile, the submarine commander played by Rhodes Reason, who's like, they're on the island with Kong, and the Kong, this is one of the first of the movies where Kong is kind of made into the good guy. Yeah, he's the, he's definitely the hero of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. And, uh, uh, which, which I, I really kind of, I really actually like a lot of the stuff that's on Mondo Island in the opening of the movie. Like the, the whole, the map paintings with him having put giant stone steps going yeah. up the side of the mountain. It's just, you you can, there's a, you can say a lot of things about these movies. You cannot deny they're creative. Uh, yeah, that's very true. And this is one of the campiest ones <laughs> oh, I had God, seen yes. at this point yet. Uh, there's so many silly little, but fun things in here. I actually had a good time with this one overall, even though still insist like both of the Japanese Kong appearances, the Kong suits look terrible. Yeah. I definitely think that this is, I kind of have a soft spot for the version from the other movie we're going to talk about today, yeah. but, uh, this Kong suit. Oh man. I, I remember, uh, I remember I actually threw it on before coming over here just to kind of refresh real quick. And, uh, there is a moment when he's fighting Gorosaurus, the big dinosaur T-Rex thing. And, Which uh, is a cool fight, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> but there is a moment where he falls backwards and almost the entire head comes off. And you can see the um, the metal and plaster ca- casing oh, that yeah. is what? keeping the head attached to 
poor Haruo Nakajima's head. In both of these, you can totally see at various points, like the the, the top headpiece sort of slightly lift off yeah. from the chest, and you can see the zipper down the back. Oh man, like, the ape suit just didn't work as well as the lizard suits for whatever yeah. Reason. And and you know the reason why the head was so much bigger is because they wanted to play more with animatronics at the time because the Kongs the, the eyes blink and the mouth moves and that's yeah. stuff that with Godzilla you can kind of hide because it's not really as humanoid a shape but with Kong it's just kind of awkwardly huge it's kind of like wearing a pumpkin on your head you right. know but uh yeah i mean and you know one one thing i thought was really interesting about this is Akira Takarada it plays one of the leads uh he's the the nominal japanese member of this three-person trio. He's the love interest for the Fay Ray character. Basically. Yes, which is really kind of unprecedented for the 1960s that the Japanese dude is is paired with the white girl. Yeah. Uh, uh, Akira Takarada is a big fucking name in Japan, and for him to be, like, second or third billing to these other white characters, that's kind of like if we made uh, a John Wayne movie, like if we Americans made a John Wayne Western and he was third billing to a couple of British actors. Yeah. It was, it's weird, but you know, it's always nice to see him. I actually got to meet him a few, a uh, few years ago and he is just the classiest guy. He's like a, uh, uh, he just, he's always wears a suit and whenever he gets up to introduce something or he's on stage to introduce a movie or something, he always does a little twirl because he's like, he's a classically, he's a triple threat. He's a singer, dancer, and actor. And a quadruple fight, he fights King Kong. Yes. Yes. <laughs> come on, come on, big monkey. Um, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, this is, uh, like I said, this is the, the, was the later one. This came out in 1967. The, the first one that came out was King Kong versus Godzilla. Both of these films have just freshly been dumped out of Universal <laughs> from their stock. Yeah. That's, uh, this, yeah. In this corner, um, this was the third Godzilla film to come out. That's correct. And I, hey. don't the, I don't know what the second one was. The second one is the much less remembered um, uh, Godzilla Raids Again, which was actually the reason why it was Raves again? Raids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He was running through a he was running through a multi-level building just kicking the crap out of a bunch of uh, Asian stuntmen. Watching. <laughs> <laughs> immediately <laughs> but uh yeah uh third godzilla movie then uh it holds the record for being the most commercially successful godzilla film like uh it, just for inflation and, and of everything. course yeah i mean because uh, why wouldn't it be yeah i mean i understand this is like you know the crossover of the greats the japanese obviously were very familiar with who king kong was at oh, this yeah. point and crossing them over with their own guy like this i mean i'm a little surprised the way despite urban legends to the contrary mm -hmm. the way the film actually ends up is like really for a film that's primarily a japanese release film i mean of course it did come out here as well but yeah i think that's the thing is that because it had both of them it actually did okay here as well as oh there. yeah it did it did these films did very well in the 1960s and these were these were staples of drive-ins uh it got to the point where toho was actually starting to rely really heavily on american um capital from these films um interestingly Little little background for this movie. I mean, I, we could go into the plot, but I mean, it's King Kong versus Godzilla. Gonna Stuff's say, gonna happen. <laughs> I, oddly, I don't even really understand the plot to this one. Okay, it's now so conv convoluted and weird. I was like, you know what? Just have the monsters fucking fight already. <laughs> it's interesting you should say that because okay, one of the things that I'm honestly a little miffed about with this release is, I mean, like we said, this is a drag and drop uh, cash in release by Universal. There's not even a menu. As I understand it, yeah, it uh, just goes right. It to just goes right feature. to it. But uh, it, it, so the Japanese version actually is very different from the American version. It is substantially edited. Um, it's not to, not for. It's just kind of to make it a little more serious and a little more pulp sixty sci fi for American taste. The Japanese version is like a goddamn Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> it's weird and funny. It, it starts okay. The opening of the film has the spinning Earth kind of going around, it's like, there are more things in heaven and earth. It's this little model of earth, and it's like, ooh, it's it's heavy and science fiction-y. Best weather earth has ever had. <laughs> <laughs> the, the USA out in front. <laughs> the Japanese version starts with the same shot of the spinning earth, and then it's the model physically stops, 
And then it cuts back, and a, and a dude, like, walks out from behind the model of the Earth and starts oh. talking about, like, oh, yes, well, and it, it turns out it's just a fucking scene transition to the interior of a, of a film studio. I thought you were going to say, like, you know, there's lots of screaming, and there is like, actually in half, and people start <laughs> flying off into space. I thought it was just Carl Sagan. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, the thing is, this is kind of storyline-wise, at least, mm-hmm. a bit of a mess, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, <laughs> it is a little more clear in the Japanese version that it's supposed to be a satire of the Japanese entertainment industry at the time. And and they also, apparently, this was the first one, they were like, you know what? This should be more appealing to kids. So yeah, they started I, toning down Godzilla, where he was kind of being more goofy. They put wrestlers in the suits this time. So well, they, they were, were always... Well, Nakajima is the guy who plays Godzilla for most of these films, and he... Uh, uh, he really, he really took his craft pretty seriously, even even in the goofier stuff. Uh, and then, uh, but the, for the Kong suit, uh, they got Solomon Hirose, who is um, for a while there was like one of the big suit actors. He played a lot opposite Nakajima in a lot of movies. Um, he was very much more of a wrestler. Like they even told him. Uh, go to the zoo and go study gorillas. He didn't go study no gorillas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna wrestle. Yeah. And I'm that's just... the thing is, like, it's the first of these where the, the actual fight looks a little silly. Mm-hmm. I mean, even to the point where they're throwing a big boulder back and forth. And oh, like, yeah. Come on. What the oh, fuck? the classics. But see, that's what makes the stuff, like, just, th- that's, you know, they have no fucks to give. The Japanese are just like, fuck it, put it on the screen. This will be awesome. Where's my sake? A regular octopus and put it on the screen and make it look giant. <laughs> funny. Right in the middle of this battle between two guys in rubber suits. That's funny about that scene is that was actually hugely influential when all these other directors mm-hmm. later like were like, you know that scene in that? We want to do something just like that. Yes. Oh, no. That's Isn't that very bizarre? true. <laughs> uh, uh, in, in our, they in our. killed like eight octopuses filming that day. Yeah, they scene. did. They actually like, that was dinner that day. Yeah, you know, I know that like, um, for the director, one of the octopi was actually his dinner. Yeah, yeah. the the um uh in the in our in our much discussed Frankenstein conquers the world, which is a splinter off of this project. Um, it was originally supposed to be Frankenstein versus King Kong. Yeah, which is still weird to me. I'm like, wait, do you guys know that Frankenstein's <laughs> relatively human sized, right? It was supposed to be a Frankenstein monster made out of different animals. Uh, supposed to be Kong sized. This is how Voltron got started. Yes. Okay. Uh, but anyway, anyway, uh. Uh, the, the, the whole, um, the whole thing about Frankenstein Congress of the World is, yeah, they were like, the American investors of that film said, hey, we really like the giant octopus of King Kong, uh, versus Godzilla. Can you throw that in at the end of Frankenstein Congress of the World and have it in apropos of nothing and <laughs> just comes out and it just kills Frankenstein? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, we'll do that. Cool. <laughs> it's just, this is a weird movie. And I, frankly, even though, like I said, King Kong Escapes didn't make as much money as this or was as well known, that's a much more fun movie than this one is. Yeah. Again, the, man, I really wish they included the Japanese version because the Japanese version has got so much just satire and it's, it really takes itself a lot less seriously than the American version, which keeps cutting back and forth to these Americans in a film studio talking about, in a news studio talking about, um, Godzilla's brain is yeah. about this <laughs> size. <laughs> I hate that, like, like Godzilla has no apparent weaknesses at all, right? And King yeah. Kong, well, well, you can... No, that's not entirely true, because for some reason he doesn't like electricity, even though it makes oh, yeah. him more powerful. Yeah, well, like, yeah. Oh, like, wait, wait. <laughs> they, they tell you that he, like, he's, like, kind of, electricity is not really his thing, but you never really see it but, have an effect on him. But they also him. say... Even though it makes him more powerful, and it's like, wait, hold on. Well, Kong is the one that makes more powerful. Yeah, oh, okay. Kong, yeah. yeah. Which is also like, wait, why? <laughs> well, they had to, I mean, you can't just you have a, I actually kind of like that because if they establish, granted, this is like this film specific. They never really, they never really revisit this idea of Godzilla being weak against electricity. Um, but the idea that Godzilla has this one weakness and Kong uh, can exploit that weakness. Yeah, I think that's a little cool. Kong but... is narcoleptic, essentially. Cause you can send... Narcoleptic drunk. Yeah, you, can, you can put him to sleep with almost anything. Mm-hmm. You just play a Nicholas mm-hmm. Sparks film, and Kong's like, you know what, I'm going to take a nap. Well, Nicholas Sparks, or King Kong and I have that in common. <laughs> but yeah, I got to say, with, with both of these, I mean, they're they're fun, but you know, I think you'd agree they're not the best out of the world of the classic kaijus. I mean, yeah. I would say King Kong Escapes is a lot more fun than this one, if for no other reason that the plot is simpler and the campy the james bondiness of yes. the, the supervillain is a lot of fun yeah I, I would i would agree in the in that uh they aren't 
they aren't as rock solid as, say, Godzilla vs. Mothra, which is the film that followed this. Or the which smog is... monster. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a story for another day, children. Hardly wait for them to re-release that. It's coming, man. Yes. It's coming. Uh <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, they're okay. They're fun to add films to add to your collection. It's a shame that Universal just kind of plopped these out with, yeah. with no extras of any kind. Just, I think, here's yeah. the movie. Yeah, I think that with the new movie coming out is is really nice that people, that they are putting these out and that uh, people are going to start being able to get their hands on them uh, more easily now. And, yeah, I mean, and I talk to a lot of people who are just getting into it because the new movie is coming out. And I'm like, well, you got to see this, you got to see this, you got to see this. King Kong vs. Godzilla is definitely required viewing if you want to start getting into this stuff. King Kong Escapes, man, just just get that and just have a good time with it, you know? Yeah. Gonna get one, might as well get the other, because, you know, uh, I don't know if they're doing... Because last time they put them out on DVD, they packaged them together. Yeah. So I don't know if they're doing that again, but whatever. Yeah, th these are just uh, relatively inexpensive releases. I fully expect you're going to be able to pick these up in tar your local Target or Walmart <laughs> for yeah. five bucks a pop before too much longer. Which, mm -hmm. like I said, decent thing to have in your collection. I thought the transfer looked pretty good, personally. It's very yeah. colorful. They cleaned it up nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, Matt, thanks a lot for joining us on that. Oh, I appreciate having you. your input. <laughs> you are fantastic, sir. I know. Uh, <laughs> Push the button, Frank. <laughs> I will push the button. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Frank, and we're going to continue on with Zelda Reviews with Broadchurch Season 1. Yes, we are. As any of those uh, folks out there may have heard me blathering on in various places about things I loved about six months ago, you would have heard me talking about this British television crime drama uh, that aired on ITV starring David Tennant, that's right, Doctor Who, uh, and Olivia Coleman, who's a comedy staple in England. You've seen her in all of the, for instance, all of the, uh, 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 Edgar Wright films, uh, you know, the, 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 the blood and ice cream trilogy. Oh yes. Uh, it was, this is not a comedy. <laughs> this was a very dark and serious murder mystery set on the Dorset coast that centered on the death of a 11 year old boy, mysterious death of an 11 year old boy. And basically the, the upset that happens in the small, very closely knit town when this new detective is brought in, played by David Tennant, uh, to take command of this investigation. Upsetting a lot of people, including Olivia Coleman's character, who is was basically right was ready for promotion to become a detective inspector instead of a detective sergeant, which is what she was. Uh, so she kind of resents him at first, but as it goes along, they get over that because they both just want to solve this mur murder mystery, and it gets into all these different characters in this town that seem very Norman Rockwell on the outside, but as it goes on and the investigation goes on, they undercover all sorts of ugliness on, laying just underneath the surface of this town's veneer of like happy and friendly, small English, a coastal town. And every episode kind of focuses on like a certain characters as they currently become the suspects. And then the leads that lead to them turn out to actually be, about something else entirely. And it's actually kind of a, a gripping, if very character-based show. Um, it's not as, you know, obviously not as bloody and violent as a lot of, like, the American equivalents would be, because, quite frankly, there's one guy who's been killed, and that's before the thing even starts. Right. <laughs> but it's a really good mystery. It's really good characters, and it was so popular there that it was picked up um, almost immediately uh, by the United States, uh, where they are going to be making, uh, Fox is making a remake of it with David Tennant playing the same role again. And it's called Twin Churches. No, no. It's called Grace Point. <laughs> I was really glad to see this actually finally come out here. This is, it's it's one of those shows you can't really watch over time. You have to just sit down and watch it over the space of a week or something, you know, just, or as I did it, a day. <laughs> uh, eight episodes. I mean, and in fact, the surprisingly, the final episode ends with a broad church will return. And keep in mind, this is not one of those shows like The Killing, where it's like one crime going to take three seasons and then never will be solved. Thanks. It's it's done. Uh, eight and done. But the characters are so interesting. They really are that you're like, I want to see them do something else together. So I'm glad to see that they're going to be coming back with a totally different mystery to solve and what have you. I'm still a little curious how they're going to do it. Is it like, are there a lot of other quirky town members? that we haven't seen yet <laughs> i don't know but it's a lot of fun to watch the dvd uh, is, is i, I kind of wish they would put out a blu-ray of course but um dvd's got is, is a three disc set with all eight episodes and a few bonus features like a behind the scenes and deleted scenes but overall just a nice excuse to put this in your collection awesome 
Well, from there, why don't we talk about Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. By the hoary host of Spill.com. <laughs> what? I don't know. I meant to say ghost. I was like, what? what? I, could, yeah. I, could not... I, I just, it's the sort of thing that, that, uh, uh, Ron Burgundy says all through the movie, especially if you watch the extra oh. features where there's the linorama where there's a billion different takes for everything he says, like by the the silver mane of Phil Donahue and shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. This actually had some amount of mixed reviews, I think, when it came out, but most people were like, even if you thought it wasn't as funny as the first one, uh, you generally went, you know what? It's still pretty funny comedy overall. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think. The jokes work okay, but I think this is the movie that finally has pushed them to the point of critical mass when it comes to ad-libbing. Like, I feel like they've gotten a little too comfortable with each other to the point that they're just trying to make each other laugh instead of the audience. So there's a few moments where it's like, uh, okay, but can we script something, maybe? It goes back and forth for yeah. me. Because like, their points in here, I think, are much funnier than anything from the first one. And then there's points you're like, guys, move on. This is not funny. Get get along with it. And a lot of that has to do with some of the – a lot of the extra people who are in this film, quite frankly. I mean, they this cast is much bigger. The story of Ron Burgundy, played by Will Ferrell, coming back, you know – at the end of the first film, you're like, oh, he he's a success. So what do these movies do? Like, okay, we need to make him not be a success and make him hit rock bottom and have to claw his way back up. Otherwise, you don't really have a movie. And in this case, they used it as what I think is the best aspect of this film as to make it a commentary about, uh, you know, 24-hour news networks and the way that news has gone from Walter Cronkite to, you know, Jack out, Jack holes talking about. Look at this cute kitten. Yeah. yeah, when there's 24 hours of news to fill, and there are several networks doing it, you're going to get some horrible fluff pieces in here. And I, I did find that it's a kind of clever, with ever, without ever feeling like they needed to lecture to you about it, like attack on that type of stuff. It's funny the ways that every time they actually say something about it, it never gets like real serious about it. Um, and the other thing I thought was really great here was Steve Carell playing Brick Tam- uh, Tamland, the the mentally retarded member of the of the crew, yeah. uh, who gets his funniest scenes I think in any in either one of the films here. But sadly, his love interest here, which they added, which is the very funny Kristen Wiig, just kind of falls flat. Well, they, I don't know. They they tried to like push his character to the nth degree by having a a female counterpart who was just like him, and I think. Her character came off more of like a parody of of mentally challenged people than it was than it was intended to be. Yeah, and it just didn't, didn't work for me at all. It's the whole movie is very hit and miss, but it, to me, like that's what you 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 kind of expect that from these type of films, regardless. And I think this is more successful than most of these type of films. Um, there are certainly ones that are so far head and tails above that. You know, you can't even like I wouldn't even compare this to this is the end, which is another one of those. Let's make up shit as we go along and see what works. And that 90 percent of it works. This is almost like on a 50 50 basis. But there's a lot of big belly laughs to be had in here, regardless, depending on how you feel about absurdist humor, because this certainly goes to some really silly, absurd places. I still like the first one a lot more than this. But I will say that, I mean, something you can kind of expect with a sequel like this is it is going to hit a lot of the same beats as the first one. And it's going to, like, hit them exactly at the same points. So when you get to the brawl in this movie, that's when it really, I was like, okay, you've really gone above and beyond. Like, they went all out with the various, like, oh, yeah. networks they bring into it and the cameos. Like, that really worked for me. But I, I feel like where, where the film really loses me is this weird, like, uh, sort of where it diverges and he's off at a lighthouse and there's like the yeah. story of him and a shark. It's It stops the movie dead for yeah. a while, for like 20, 30 minutes. And you're like, guys, get back to the actual regular story. There's no reason to have this in here. Um, That's the biggest, I think that's the biggest flaw with this film, quite frankly, is yeah. that decision to do that. But what it has a great ending. <laughs> like that last 15 minutes or so is so funny. I mean, especially the History Channel. I'm sorry. Yes. When they show up with the ghost of uh, Stonewall Jackson, played by John C. Riley and a Minotaur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's also a nice slight against the History Channel. Uh, yeah. There's, I think there's much more to like here and there's not. In some ways, I like this better than the first one. In some ways, I like it less. Either way, it's I for me, I thought it was more or less on even ground with it. It was about 50-50, funny to eh. But much like the recent re-release of Anchorman, where they just packed it full of extra features, this one is packed 
full of extra features the uh two with two discs of stuff the first both discs have a version of the movie the second one has they say it's like 760 some more jokes yeah, you gotta love it when they actually count the number of new jokes but, and then there's an asterisk though on the commercial that says Subject to your sense of humor. And, and I think that it's not just so much new jokes as they're, they've just substituted in alternate jokes for scenes. I'm not entirely well, I mean, sure about that. Right. But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like an extended scenes. It's, we took out that scene and replaced an alternate version of it with stuff. So, I mean, six and one half dozen of the other, especially with that sort of stuff. A lot of that sort of thing you can see on the Lionorama, the gag reel, alternate versions of the cat fight, the dolphin show, what have you. There's lots of stuff like that. There's table reads. There's an audio commentary with the cast and crew. Disc two uh, features a, a four-part uh, featurette behind the scenes. Apparently there was talk at some point that they were going to make it a musical and they decided against it. And they talk about that deleted scenes, extended alternate scenes, uh, auditions for stuff in here. Uh, a fun one. The essential thing on here was a benefit for this, uh, this thing in LA called eight, two, six LA where Jack Black performs a song about Anchorman two. That's all about him just cussing out everyone involved. Cause they didn't bring his character back from the first one. It's actually pretty fucking funny. Uh, but yeah, this is a solid, I think it's a solid release. It's a solid comedy release. I don't think it's like the going to be the funniest movie this year by any stretch of the imagination. But if you liked Anchorman, you're pretty much going to like Anchorman two. Fair enough. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about a film that I probably should have seen by now that is getting a Blu-ray release, and that is Norma Ray. Oh, you haven't seen Norma Ray? I've never seen Norma Ray. Well, I have a confession. Until this, I had never seen it either. <laughs> it was always on my list of, you know, I probably should have seen that by now. I mean, especially because this was the movie that made uh, Sally Field not just a sidekick to other people, but a star in her own right. I mean, she had been in Smokey and the Bandit before this and was kind of known for roles like that. But this is the first one where she came out and people were like, wow, she's really amazing. I mean, as far as a theatrical film, right before this, she had been in, uh, oh, what is the name of that movie? Television movie about the woman with the multiple, Sybil, Sybil. Uh, yeah. where she got a lot of like, wow, can you believe that's Gidget and <laughs> the Flying Nun doing that? But this was the movie where she came out and won Best Actress for at the Academy Awards. It was uh, it was uh, it won I think soundtrack or score or something like that as well. It was nominated for six other things. Uh, it ended up in the National Film Registry, the Library of Congress. So a lot of people think of this as a very important film, and I think that it's kind of a it's kind of a product of its time, and that ultimately it's it's like an explanation to Americans of what unions are. And yes. why they're important and good for you. Well, thankfully, we don't have to deal with uh, improper work conditions or an unfair <laughs> job market now these days. That's, That's why it's great. so quaint. It's like, oh. yeah, that worked for a little while. Didn't seem like it really worked for long because <laughs> pretty sure the big companies won this battle in a way that's not going back anytime soon. Run, yeah. uh, but uh, Norma Ray, Sally Field is... She's a minimum wage worker in a cotton mill, uh, taking a toll on the health of her family. Her mom has gotten really sick from it or has hearing problems, uh, from, you know, the loudness of machines and, uh, you know, her dad has heart troubles and she's got three kids of her own without, you know, any father taking care of them. Um, and she, after meeting this New York union organizer, organizer, uh, played by the very intentionally Jewish Ruben Warshawski <laughs> is the name of the character. Uh, Ron Liebman plays the role. Ah, Ron Cadillac from Archer. Oh, is that? Yeah, that's... that's is that the same guy? Yeah. That's no name, kidding. Yeah. That's hysterical. Uh, who is actually married to Jessica... Jessica yeah, Jessica Walters. Uh, after meeting him, she starts to get in... You know, she's like, I didn't even know there was a thing really like this. I didn't even really know anything about unions. And she... It becomes sort of a very meaningful for her as she tries to balance both being a big part of this and convincing all her coworkers that, you know, this is not communism. This is something that we should have in America. This is about our civil rights to. Yeah. Thank God that doesn't happen either. When you try to introduce a new thought and immediately uh, get hated on the board. Detractors are like you're a communist and or socialist. Yeah. And in this movie, they even say, or Jew, <laughs> you know, that people still said stuff like that back then. But, um, and she's bouncing that along with her new uh, husband, played by a surprisingly good-looking Bo Bridges. <laughs> I was like, wow, Bo Bridges actually used to be handsome. Uh, wow. Well, thank you, movie. Something just dropped off real quick not too long after this. Jeff ended up inheriting all of the handsome, I think. I, I don't know. It's not like Bo Bridges is ugly. I think he just put on a lot of weight right, relatively young. Um, you know, it's... 
like I said, this is a movie that's very much a product of its time, and it almost seems kind of quaint now. Um, uh, there's certainly solid performances across the board, especially from Sally Field, who really is phenomenal in this. But in some ways, this just made me more sad than anything. And that, like, all of this energy and, you know, the whole world taking notice of this at the time and the strength of the unions is now almost meaningless. So, I mean, like I said, Portrait of a Time, a really interesting early portrait of Sally Field, but it just doesn't have the same impact now as it did when it came out. Given that things are still kind of completely fucked up out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's like a little half hour, like, bonus feature here that's like an old episode of an Entertainment Tonight type show called Hollywood Backstory, Norma Ray, which is a decent enough overview of the production. It talks a lot about, you know, some of the more interesting factors, like nobody wanted to make this movie. It was really hard to get it done. They thought at the very least they'd have no trouble getting a big actress because it was such a great written role for an actress, but no actress wanted any part of it. So in the fight to get a relative unknown Sally Field into the role, it's interesting stuff. But and certainly once again as a as a product of its time. But this is a film in some ways is a film more about the rise of modern feminism than it is about even about like, you know, unionism in and of itself. But even so, that feels quaint, you know? So, I don't know. A mixed feelings about it overall. I can see why it was as popular as it was at the time. Fair enough. Well, from there, we're going to talk about how many Ronin? Uh, 47 Ronin. 47. That's way too many Ronin. Try not to suck any more Ronin on your way to the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) My girlfriend fought 47 Ronin. In in a row? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is the... This is a weird story in that you know it's a weird movie that the studio had no idea what to do well universal studios spent 170 million dollars on this thing like basically on this product that seemed like that had one star in it keanu reeves and like a lot of other japanese actors who were you know known a little some of them known a little bit by americans but not really overall uh, did you see Long Duck Dong is in this even at one point? So they got like every Japanese actor. I missed well, that. Yeah, he's in it briefly. Spaghetti <laughs> Watanabe. Um, but and it's by a relatively untried director. 170 million dollars, and what I the best I can guess from what I've looked from early promotional stuff going around about this is they sold it as an Asian Lord of the Rings. They're like, this is the beginning of this epic thing. It's based on one of the most important and and influential stories and remade stories from Japanese culture. Uh, you know, I mean, it based loosely on a true story. Although, guess what? There was no half-breed character, which is what Keanu Reeves plays in it. They changed it to incorporate oh, the white guy. Yeah, I know. And there were no dragons or, or wizards or anything like that. It was actually based on real events that happened that are still highly venerated, if not controversial, in Japanese culture, which is basically that uh, a lord was had was assassinated in a very clever, backward sort of way by by tricking him into attacking another guy who was close to the shogun. Yeah, tricking him into a situation where the results that he had to take his own life. Yeah, exactly. Now his forty-seven Ronin were sh- were Sam formerly samurai were shamed and sent off to wander the earth like Kane and Kung Fu, and uh, they decide, well, you know what, this is bullshit because that guy now he's going to be all powerful. He took our Lord's daughter uh, like forcibly, you know, with the approval of the Shogun to marry her after a year. She's allowed for grief. We can't let that happen. We have to avenge this because we know what actually happened. And so they formed an elaborate plan, and as history will tell you, succeeded. But this brings in Keanu Reeves as this half breed who's adopted, who has a sort of platonic love going on because they can't really be together with the princess in question. And he's this mega badass because he comes from this. It's not really clear. Like, are there demons in Japanese culture? Demon means a lot of different stuff. Yeah, there's like mm-hmm. monsters roaming around. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's very silly and it could have been cool. It could have been cool. It's so close at points to being cool. It's more on the actual martial arts and the actual sword fighting and less on the CGI creature effects. Yeah. Which, by the way, don't look that great. Well, the first one does, which is a disappointment. There's like this very Princess Mononoke-ish fight with this giant beast in the woods where Keanu Reeves... See, I thought it wasn't wasn't terrible. It was just like I was pretty impressed with it myself, and I just liked the way it played out. But after that, almost everything after that is just kind of predictable and stupid. Uh, I'm sorry about my cat; he wants to go outside for some reason. Yeah, I Uh, mean, and I don't know. Like, I think with all of this kind of supernatural flourishes going on, 
it distracted from the more human story, which was felt very underdeveloped. Yes. And I think it's what kept me at arm's length from it. I was like, I don't really feel connected to any of these human characters because you're spending so much time on, like, look how dazzling it is that this woman can pick up stuff with her hair. And it's like, okay. I mean, I, this is the kind of thing that I normally, that I do enjoy from, like, which you see more often in Hong Kong cinema, certainly. But uh, that, that I enjoy this sort of thing. And just to some degree, I was enjoying this. But it was just... It couldn't make up its mind what kind of film it wanted to be. It, it's hemming and hawing back and forth about how serious it wants to be, how campy it wants to be. Are you a fantasy adventure? Are you a serious drama? I mean, even especially the way it ends, which at least is honest to the original story to some degree, is so out of place with the rest of with a big fantasy adventure film. I mean, I appreciate that's true to the original Japanese tale, but fuck, you changed everything else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in this case, it just feels like, wait, what? Yeah, if you can change the story to, to insert Gaijin Reeves, uh, I think you can change a few other things as well. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a movie that ultimately, that you go through and you're like, it's kind of a mess, but there is a lot of stuff in here that is kind of fun to watch. There's just so many mistakes. Like, they set up this big villain, like an eight-foot-tall samurai that we never see his face in armor, and then he, when they take him out, it's like dumb luck. Yeah. It's like you're well, set... And he's described as Lovecraftian. Yeah. I'm like... How was he Lovecraftian? Lovecraftian about him. Like I said, this is, it felt like there were just too many people involved in this, too many decisions made by people who didn't really know what they were doing, and ultimately he ended up with, with a colorful mess of a film. Like I said, it's a mess, but it's worth watching at least once. And it's, it should be noted that, like, this film actually did sit around for a while. Like, they, yeah. they weren't sure what to do with it, and then when they did finally release it briefly in theaters, uh, it failed to make its money back. So and maybe internationally it'll do better. But. There's not even much in the way of extra features. There's a few little featurettes here on various aspects of the performance and four deleted scenes. But, I mean, why? at this point they had to know, why bother spending a lot of money on putting together the extra stuff on Just some process? Just go watch 13 Assassins again. Seriously. have a better time. Or for the first time, if you haven't seen it. Because it's awesome. Well, now we're going to travel back to when Jews were funny. I can't, that's not an editorializing on my part. <laughs> That's the name of the next thing we're going to talk about. You know, this was a odd little film. It's by a Canadian director, Alan Zwieg, who uh, has a has made a career out of doing odd little documentaries. And the idea is it's exploring the role of Jewish comedians in the history of North American comedy and humor, like how that it all started and how that has changed today and the reasons it's changed. And it actually has a lot to say about it. It's a really interesting path that went on there is they examined, well, what is it that, 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 you know, designated a Jewish comedian's sort of humor as opposed to, I mean, not just telling jokes about Jewish culture, obviously, right. although there's a lot of that in here with Jews telling Jewish jokes, but why was it so different? Why was it so well received? And what changed where it's not like, you know, as dominating a force as it once was. Um, and I don't think they ever answered that last question. In fact, it's much disagreed upon whether or not that's a valid question at all. Um, but there's certainly a lot of interesting people in here to talk about, even though one of the things I'm going to criticize this film for, it didn't seem like they had a lot of ambition, quite frankly. I mean, you're going like one of your big, your big, biggest name here is probably Mark Maron, but then they've got people like Howie Mandel and Judy Gold and Gilbert Gottfried, Jackie Mason. Um, there's a huge amount of people in here. Uh, uh, yeah. And you're like, you seriously couldn't get Jerry Seinfeld or Woody Allen or any number of much bigger guys who probably have something really interesting to say about this who would be interested to be part of it, most likely. I mean, a complex questions like they pose here. And it seems to me like they probably weren't even asked. Well, did I ever tell you my Mark Maron story? So there was one that my brother was visiting. It was, it was probably a couple of years ago. He was in town visiting. And we were going to run a movie at Vulcan Video. Now, Vulcan is next to this place called Cold Town Theater. And they're always doing various crazy things, either like improv or they'll have stand-up comics or whatever. So we're walking past, and there's these two people outside. Come in, give me free, free stand-up comedy, free stand-up comedy. Like, okay, sure. So we go in, the only seats available. We're like, we'll sit in the back. If it's not funny, we'll leave. Of course, the only seats are available are dead center in the, in the front row. So we go and we sit down, and it's just this guy just going on and on about how miserable his life is and how much he hates oh, Mark his Mayer. life. And I didn't know who Mark Maron was at the time. I was just like, oh, wow, this is really like uncomfortable. I'm not really finding the humor in this. And then he notices that my brother and I are the youngest people in the audience, so of course he starts picking on us, like left and right. 
And like I kept finally we were able to like sneak out when he wasn't looking. I was like, that was really uncomfortable. And then later I find out, oh, that was Mark Marin. <laughs> so he is an acquired taste. He is. And it's funny now I listen to his stuff on the radio and and maybe it was just an off night for him or what. But it's like I get, I get it. Like that's. That's funny, but, like, when you're in the room and he's just, like, really... Well, he was sitting there playing Cold Town Theater in Austin. He was probably like, how did I get here? He's probably... And this was long <laughs> before he had his, his very successful podcast, so... Yeah, yeah, still struggling. And I know he suffered deeply with depression. In yeah. fact, he even discusses that in this in this uh, uh, documentary. And, you know, the weakest part of this whole thing is really the director slash narrator himself, Alan Zweig, who doesn't seem to really know what he's doing. I mean, he gets into these confrontational conversations with these guys where they're like, uh, regularly tell them, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> like, repeatedly through it. And, like, doesn't really know how to phrase his questions and just kind of meanders. You know, it's a shame because this actually is made into a fascinating topic as it goes along. A lot of these people have some really cool stuff to say. And my God, there's some funny fucking jokes in this thing. Some Jewish jokes I had never heard that I am not allowed to tell. <laughs> but they're pretty funny listening to some Jewish comedians tell them. Uh But yeah, it's just, yeah, I can't get past the director. I really couldn't. He's just... Wow, what are you doing, man? You Why didn't you have the right? You gotta have the right person in charge of a documentary for it to work. Yeah, and this guy is—he thinks he's like Morgan, uh, Morgan Spurlock or somebody, and he's like, "Dude, you—it's like you didn't even write anything down before you started." So I don't know, kind of a mixed bag. All right. Well, from there, we're gonna talk about "Meet Him and Die," which is yeah, the latest release from Raro Video, a Polizzi Tecci movie. Oh, you said it right. <laughs> 1976. Yeah, no, I I actually like Polizzi movies quite a bit. I mean, it's it's one of the the ways in which like Franco Nero rose to prominence, sure. and um, even American actors like uh, oh my god, I can see his Frank Silva or Henry Silva. Henry Silva was a guy who became famous overseas first, and then uh, kind of came back to the states. But Meet Him and Die is is kind of an undercover story about. A, a jewel thief that has a really just horribly botched robbery that in, that puts him in jail, and he ends up being kind of on the same cell block as a notorious mafia leader. Well, actually... Played by Martin Balsam. <laughs> yes, the detective from Psycho. So it turns out that this jewel thief is actually a cop, and this is this elaborate kind of scheme, and they tell you this early on, I'm not spoiling anything. They, uh, this is an elaborate scheme to kind of infiltrate the mafia, and he's actually going to go so far as to break him out of prison to figure out how his various activities are working on the outside. And I think on that level, it's pretty effective. It works pretty well. My problem with the movie overall, though, the score is awful. Yeah, it's it really terrible. Like, you have this, like, plucky, upbeat. It almost sounds like uh, like an elevator version of My Way by Frank Sinatra, just, like, very upbeat and happy while he's, like, going to kill people. Like, it's completely at odds with the, the tone. It felt the like they were trying to sell a hippie movie or something, really you know? Like, it was like, this isn't Harold and Maude, guys. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. I only, it's a very violent, like, spy caper film, basic, for all extents and purposes. Because a lot, the really the biggest attraction here is the stunt work, which is really pretty well done overall. Yeah. In fact, there are several scenes where you're like, there's no way that guy didn't get a broken arm or something. Oh, and when you see the, the car chase, when cars are flying every which way, going like 70 miles an hour and barely missing, it's like, oh, this was not well coordinated. Yeah, there's a chase uh, with a motorcycle chasing a truck. That apparently originally, if you watch the, there's a, there's a fun little bonus feature on here with like a sort of historian of these sort of films. It says apparently originally it was supposed to be a two, two boat chase and somehow before, by the time it got production, it was a motorcycle chasing a truck. That's a pretty impressive stunt scene. Yeah. You know, there's even a before Raiders of Lost Ark, Raiders of Lost Ark climbing under the truck sequence. Well, yeah, not only that, but there's, there's a sequence where he's remembering uh, a tragic event in his life that is framed almost exactly like a scene from Heat. Yeah. Like specifically Tom Sizemore's demise in Heat. It's it's framed almost the exact same way. And I was like, holy shit, somebody has seen this movie. Well, his name is Michael Mann. It's funny. This is okay. So this is definitely a lesser of these type of films. Sure. No question. And a lot of that has to do with the fact the plot is a mess. It's all over the place. You're never really sure what the motivations are for the lead cop who uh, on one level is working for the cops. Uh, on the other level, he just wants revenge for his mother who apparently was shotgunned to death by or not to death, but shotgunned it to, into a wheelchair by two lower level thugs who he never even really gets revenge against. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? What is happening? There's about three quarters of the way through this film. I'm like, I've lost track of what's actually happening. Yeah, it, it's, it stays 
on its narrative thread for a while, and then it starts to to diverge a little bit and get a little bit muddled. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that the screenwriter is Claudio Forgasso, who you might remember as the director of Troll 2. Yeah, so, well, there you go. That, that should tell you everything um, you know. And the weird love scene with Elkie Summer, who's gorgeous. Like, I mean, just gorgeous. And It's like very weird music during it, and it's odd watching. You're like, what kind of people make love like this? And then it ends, like, literally, like, mid-lyric <laughs> with the yeah. song playing and just goes to, all right, so now it's him on the bed going through her purse while she's in the bathroom. So, if, oh, if they were what? to end mid-lyric, I would have preferred they ended as soon as the music started. Right. Again, I really hate So this. awful. So really mixed reaction to this. Honestly, my favorite thing about this was the bonus feature uh, with Mike Malloy doing like about a six and a half minute introduction, just talking about the history of these type films and the terminology involved. And it's actually a, a cool little introduction to this genre of films altogether a background but the movie itself like i said is is lesser <laughs> it's not so great and we're gonna wrap it up this week with the bag man yep left holding the bag oh bag man who are you gonna hold for this is another uh john cusack direct-to-video movie boy oh, have good. there been a lot of those lately oh yeah this should, this should be excellent um it was known as motel overseas apparently when it was released but it is te- still technically a 2014 action crime thriller film um that's based on original screenplay by james russo if you will um, the hell this, I'm looking at this cast. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's got an amazing, crazy cast of people in this. Cusack, De Niro, Crispin Glover, Dominic Purcell. Oh, and Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers, who actually isn't bad in it, really? quite frankly. I mean, he doesn't give him a lot to do, but he's you never go, wow, that guy's horrible. Right. Um, as well as, uh, oh, God, what is the name of the guy? Oh, Dominic Purcell, who was the lead guy in, in um, uh, Prison Break. Uh, plays a role in here as a cop. But the idea here is John Cusack has signed, made a deal with Robert De Niro to pick up a bag and then wait in this hotel room, hotel room number 13, in this little tiny out of the way hotel for him to come and personally pick it up. And part of the deal is no matter what, no matter what happens, you cannot look inside the bag. Okay. Okay. So Cusack apparently has worked for this guy for a long time, but there were some problems along the way. It's not clear exactly what. Apparently his fiance committed suicide and it fucked him up and he was off his game. So now he's trying to get back into it. Uh, and it's just like, whatever, I'm just going to do this job. But along the way, there's just, everybody is fucking with them. And as it goes along, it seems clear everyone who's anywhere near this motel is after this bag. Uh, and he's never really sure who to trust and who not to. Crispin Glover is the crazy attendant at the hotel who's actually very, Crispin Glovery. Crispin Glovery. <laughs> uh, uh, Rob De Niro, of course, plays the the guy who's who's you know what's his name a Dragna, <laughs> who's set up this whole deal in the first place. Dominic Purcell is a corrupt local sheriff. Uh, Sticky Fingers and Martin Klebs. Sticky Fingers is apparently playing Nick Fury. Well, he's yeah, he's one eyed, but uh, they're pimp gangsters who are have the room next door who are looking everywhere for their missing hooker who has hidden out uh with john cusack's character played by rebecca DaCosta. and this is really the weakest point of this film because they present john cusack's character as just this hard-nosed fuck it all i don't care about anybody or anything except getting this job done type of guy he treats her like shit and she's just like sticks to him like glue and he melts every time it's time every time it's time to appropriately do some in the situation scenario do something to tell her to fuck off he's like no i better help her no you wouldn't you're like a fucking hard-nosed assassin type bagman guy you would never do any of that shit <laughs> but the movie requires it so and you know it gets more and more convoluted as it goes along like who can you trust and there are points it's actually kind of fun in a campy noir sort of way um the director uh david Gro is clearly a Quentin Tarantino fan because De Niro is given several very Tarantino speeches speeches in this that you are mean De Niro is the, what what did I say? I thought you said Tarantino was giving Tarantino. No, no, De Niro is given okay. several Tarantino-ish speeches gotcha. uh, that that work that are actually fun. The the highlight of the film, but man. At the, Rebecca DaCosta is not a good actress, first off. She's beautiful, sure, but wow, is she bland. And when the film is has to be carried by her and Cusack together, uh, and you have to believe that the heat is the chemistry is so good that like this trained killer is just like, well, whatever, you know, falls for like that. I yeah, I couldn't believe it. It was hard to get into it. And 
boy, does it have a silly, unbelievable ending when it comes together. Like, oh, fuck you, movie. There's a reason why this movie was largely uh, why it was bagged on by so many critics who actually the critics who actually got a chance to see it because it's not good. All right. Well, that is a sour note to end on, but I do have a much happier note now with our giveaway. And this week, we have Venture Brothers Season 5 on Blu-ray to give away, which you may remember we reviewed just a couple of weeks ago. Oh my god. Yes, that's right. Venture Brothers Season 5 on Blu-ray. Now, the way our giveaways work, you guys probably know this by now, we've been doing more of a creative writing prompt via Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow us on Twitter, at OneOfUsNet. And then what I want you to do is tweet at us with what OneOfUs.net would be called if it were an organization of supervillains. Oh, well, wait, isn't it? Uh, Well, kind of. But it's sort of in the vein of the the Guild of Calamitous Intents. But uh, if one of us were an organization of supervillains, what would we be called? So tweet that at us and hashtag that Venture Bros Giveaway. We'll pick our favorite, and that person will win. And please, this is open to U.S. residents only. That's funny. I was actually um, putting together a thing to try and interest some... uh, people from around the world from being part of a project we're working on and i had to totally rewrite it because there were too many examples of saying join the us and i was like oh wait it sounds like join the u.s yeah, right. <laughs> i was like fuck i gotta rewrite this whole thing suddenly in the eyes of the global community we are douchebags yeah sorry don't mean it like that like we're trying to bring back imperialism i swear it's not an acronym we want guam <laughs> We Wait, do we still I don't even know what Guam, Guam is. Again. Is that a is that a Vietnamese dish? I don't know. <laughs> We're smart. So that's going to do it for the show this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast at DIGINoiseCast. You can also follow the website at One of Us Net, which you should do in order to win the giveaways. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And you should also, uh, you know, think about becoming a subscriber, guys. I can't I can't stress enough how cool. These incentives are. And not only that, but uh, you should start using our forum if you haven't done that already. You can find a link for that right up at the top of the page. Uh, it will take you directly to our forums. But that is going to tie in it in a certain aspect. Yes, our... you're going to want to go ahead and get familiar now, is yes, what I'm saying. indeed. Well, that's going to do it for the show this week, guys. So until next time, I'm going to say what I always do, which is that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Also beer. <laughs>